Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, June 18th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Millions in the path as a major storm gathers strength in the Gulf of Mexico. That storm expected to be named Claudette, likely heading for Louisiana. Millions celebrating after the Supreme Court upholds the Affordable Care Act yet again, as both President Biden and former President Barack Obama weigh in on the decision. And 15 states now reaching President Biden's goal of at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine, while the federal government prepares for future outbreaks of the coronavirus this fall. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with 7 million people along the Gulf Coast under a tropical storm warning. That warning issued by the National Hurricane Center stretching from southeast Louisiana to the Alabama-Florida border. Coastal Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia and the Florida Panhandle could face heavy rains and flooding today and into the weekend. Meanwhile, a heat emergency out west, 50 million people across several states under a major heat alert, people baking under those record breaking triple digit temperatures and some being asked to conserve power. Grecia Lastra has more. We apologize for that technical difficulty, but now we head to Washington, where for the third time, the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act, bringing relief to 31 million Americans who depend on it for insurance. In a 7-2 decision, the conservative-leaning court ruling against several Republican-led states that had sued to block the law. In a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court upholding the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, for a third time. Today, millions of families are finding that they can stay on their insurance and won't fall over this cliff because all of a sudden they lose some of that subsidy support that they got to be able to afford their insurance. If we extend that permanently, millions of Americans will continue to have their coverage. The conservative-leaning court ruling the plaintiffs, Texas, and 17 other Republican-led states who objected to the mandate requiring insurance had not suffered any injury that would give them standing to sue because there is no longer a penalty for not having insurance. Justice Stephen Breyer declaring they have failed to show that they have standing to attack as unconstitutional, the act's minimum essential coverage provision. President Biden calling it a big win for the American people, Former President Barack Obama reacting in a tweet saying, Now we need to build on the Affordable Care Act and continue to strengthen and expand it. That's what President Biden has done through the American Rescue Plan, giving more families the peace of mind they deserve. The Attorney General for Virginia says he hopes this challenge to Obamacare is its last. Now, I don't think there is a good legal basis for it. They may try, but one thing is for certain, if they do, I and my Democratic colleagues will be right in there fighting for health care, making sure that Americans have access to affordable quality health care, which they deserve. Meanwhile, recent comments from Senate Minority Senate Leader Mitch McConnell are pointing to another court battle. McConnell threatening to potentially block a Biden Supreme Court nominee in 2023 and 2024 if Republicans win back the Senate. Now, a new push from some progressive Democrats for liberal Justice Stephen Breyer the oldest serving justice on the court to step down. 
This morning, 18 legal scholars publishing this full-page ad in the New York Times, calling Breyer a remarkable jurist, but saying it is best for the country if he steps down. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton pledged to continue the fight against Obamacare, which he called a massive government takeover of health care. But it's not clear what Republicans can exactly do. Right now, the health law is undergoing an expansion under Biden, who sees it as the foundation for moving the U.S. to coverage for all. Meanwhile, President Biden, fresh from his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin, turning back to his ambitious domestic agenda. This, as a bipartisan infrastructure proposal gathers steam. Rafael Rodriguez has more. President Biden turning the focus to his domestic agenda as a new bipartisan infrastructure pitch is gaining steam. Our focus is on a bipartisan proposal that focuses on true infrastructure and doesn't raise taxes. Spearheaded by Senator Mitt Romney and others, the new proposal calls for $1.2 trillion in total spending on roads, bridges and other physical infrastructure with roughly $579 billion in new spending. One sign of the progress, 21 senators, including 11 Republicans, are now on board. Aides briefed President Trump on the proposal on Thursday after he struck an optimistic tone in Switzerland. So I'm still hoping we can put together uh, the two bookends here. Whether lawmakers can remains to be seen. Liberal Democrats are already dismissing the plan as inadequate. If they really, really, really want this bipartisan deal so that, you know, they can go out and, and, and champion that, then we're going to have to really talk about Medicare, wages, unionization and climate, especially climate. Top Senate Democrats are vowing to move ahead with their own ambitious package as bipartisan talks drag on. Discussions about infrastructure are moving forward along two tracks. One is bipartisan. Senator Chuck Schumer making it clear that Democrats are proceeding with using a fast-track process known as budget reconciliation. Yesterday, I convened all 11 members of the Senate Budget Committee to discuss the reconciliation track. Meanwhile, more progress on voting rights. After Senator Joe Manchin outlined demands on legislation that could create an opening for compromise, like mandating two weeks of early voting while also backing ID requirements. It's always a big hill around here. Just remember this, the person who topped the mountain didn't fall there, okay? Stacey Abrams offering a major endorsement. If Joe Manchin and the U.S. senators who support this legislation are willing to come together on a compromise, then we will make progress. Senator Mitch McConnell slamming the changes and saying this. Equally unacceptable, totally inappropriate. All Republicans, I think, will oppose that as well. In other news out of Washington, the Department of Justice has released new body camera footage from the January 6th Capitol insurrection. It captures a retired NYPD officer who's accused of taking part in the attack, beating a Capitol Police officer. The release comes as several Republican lawmakers continue downplaying the seriousness of the insurrection. Edwin Pitti has the video and details from Washington, D.C., but first we must warn our viewers this footage may be upsetting to some. Edwin. That's right, Andrea. The release of this graphic video from a police body camera by the Department of Justice came after many news outlets requested the footage and is part of the case against Thomas Webster, a former Marine and retired NYPD officer accused of taking part in the January 6th attack. 
In the video, Webster is seen screaming profanities, wielding a flagpole and then rushing at officers to engage them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. A Capitol Police officer was able to take the flagpole away from the man, but then Webster tackled him to the ground. Let's watch part of that video. Well, as you can see, prosecutors also submitted photos showing the moment Webster kept attacking the officer. And then former Marine is now facing seven federal charges, including assaulting police. And so far, he has pleaded not guilty to all charges. If you think about watching this video as uh, something hard, imagine now and how it must be to the families of those officers who lost their lives. That's why many are angry at the 21 Republicans who voted against awarding congressional medals to Capitol Police. The life partner of following Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick said that the lies coming from congressional Republicans regarding the events on January 6 need to stop. Take a listen. It's very difficult. Uh, it makes me incredibly angry. Uh, which is why I continue to speak out. Uh, it enrages me that they continue to gaslight uh, their supporters, uh, and they're not doing the right thing. Garza also said that Republicans are downplaying the violence and denying the bravery of the men and women who protected the Capitol. Garza says she's been harassed online by Trump supporters and warned not to continue to speak out on the issue. So far, Andrea, 521 people have been arrested and charged for their involvement on the January 6th riot. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin, for all those details. And on Capitol Hill, the Democratic-led House passed a legislation Thursday to repeal the 2002 authorization for use of military force in Iraq. 49 Republicans joined Democrats in backing that measure, but one Democrat voted against it. Supporters argue the nearly 20-year-old law is outdated and no longer necessary. The 2002 war authorization was passed in the days after the 9-11 attacks and was seen as an expansion of the president's ability to wage war without congressional approval. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will take up similar legislation next week. And in Iowa, a controversial pro-police bill is now law. Governor Kim Reynolds signed the so-called Back the Blue bill at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy on Thursday. Under the new law, rioting becomes a felony instead of a misdemeanor. It also makes it more difficult to sue law enforcement officers for misconduct. Proponents of the bill say it's about public safety. Critics say it endangers more people. More states now on the list of those that have already reached President Biden's goal of 70% of adults with at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. This as the administration makes a huge investment in the treatment of the virus in the future. Lorraine Caceres has more. Two weeks left before the 4th of July deadline and 15 states and D.C. have already reached the Biden administration's goal of 70% of adults with at least one dose. And almost all of them, except for California and Pennsylvania, have inoculated at least half of their population. Meanwhile, the Biden administration already thinking ahead, preparing for future seasonal outbreaks, announcing the investment of billions of dollars on antiviral drugs that would help treat the virus. So today, the Biden administration announced their investment of $3.2 billion from the American Rescue Plan 
as part of the COVID-19 antiviral development strategy. It's a whole of government effort aimed at developing the next generation of COVID-19 treatments, as well as preparing us for future threats. But for now, the best and only defense are vaccines. Health officials still trying to determine for how long they will provide protection and when and if boosters will be needed. Whether or not one needs it is going to depend on two things. It's going to depend on the durability of the protection. And I want to emphasize by durability, I don't mean that the vaccines now are not effective. We're talking about the length of the protection, which we know is very high right now. As the Delta variant spreads around the nation, in Illinois, the governor trying to ensure his state stays protected from the concerning variants in the coming months, taking his vaccination efforts up a notch, offering up to $10 million in lottery prizes to those who choose to get inoculated. There's no sign-up, no forms, no waiting in line. You did your part already, and this is a way of saying thank you. It's also our way of saying to those who haven't yet been vaccinated, please join us. The Department of Health and Human Services working on building vaccine confidence in communities, enlisting students 16 years or older to act as ambassadors to help promote COVID-19 vaccinations. We're going to actually go out and enlist a student 16 years and older who wants to help us, we want you to be part of this team that the president has uh, assembled to help us get your peers uh, vaccinated because you're going to have a far better chance of getting them to listen to you than maybe to some of us. Meanwhile, as the summer approaches, the U.S. going back to pre-pandemic life. In California, packed crowds for the first time in a year and a half. The Padres welcoming fans at full capacity at Petco Park Thursday. And both the president and the vice president will offer uh, an update today on the progress of the vaccination program and also the COVID-19 response. Meanwhile, um, as the U.S. health officials here are watching the spread of the Delta variant across the nation, the U.K. is already reporting that 99% of all new cases there are due to the Delta variant. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, as the pace of vaccination inches further in the U.S., health experts continue warning that even if rich nations immunize all their people, the pandemic will not be defeated as long as vaccination rates don't remain or remain low in poorer nations. Africa is especially vulnerable. It accounts for 18% of the world's population, but the continent has vaccinated only 3% of its population. South Americas and Asia vaccination rates hover in the lower 30 percent in contrast to North American countries, which have vaccinated 68 percent of their population. Joining me now to discuss this is Preeti Krishtal of Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge, a nonprofit advocating equitable access to medicines. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to U News. Thank you for having me. The U.S. pledged 500 million vaccine doses to COVAX ahead of the G7 summit. How would you rate the U.S. response to vaccinating the rest of the world? 
I think the U.S. announcement was a step in the right direction. Today, we need 11 billion doses to treat people worldwide. So this gets us less than 5% of the way there. I think President Biden is taking all the right steps and he is working with urgency uh, to bring other world leaders along. But the response we're seeing from the G7 is simply insufficient. We need 11 billion doses to treat people worldwide and we just don't have a plan and a strategy to get us there. The United States expressed support for a waiving intellectual properties of vaccines in May. Has there been any significant movement on this front? There are steps moving in the right direction. Uh, we're going to see text-based negotiations start to happen at the World Trade Organization, which simply means that countries all over the world are now going to come together to negotiate what this is actually going to mean in real terms. But we feel that this is simply moving too slow. All signs indicate that negotiations are not going to end until the end of this year. And meanwhile, there are people worldwide, as you noted, you know, Africa uh, actually has, in terms of people who are fully vaccinated, not just one dose, the entire continent is at less than 1% right now. In India, home to 1.4 billion people, we have less than 3% fully vaccinated. And in countries across Latin America, uh, like Guatemala or Honduras, again, you're looking at less than 3% vaccination. And so we need to act with urgency right now to make sure that most of humanity is actually receiving this vaccine. And we are not seeing the kind of plan and strategy we need to come out of the G7 to make that happen this year. What are some other barriers blocking vaccine access in poorer nations? I think one of the primary barriers right now is that we are seeing the power to determine who can get vaccinated and how supply is going to be scaled up is all concentrated in the hands of a few companies. We have been building momentum worldwide to call on companies to share their knowledge, to transfer the technology so that as many manufacturers worldwide can get going to scale up access to vaccines. And yet, we have not seen cooperation from the companies. They are not participating in the World Health Organization's program for technology sharing. We are not seeing enough licenses being granted to manufacturers all over the world so we can start to scale up vaccine supply. And that is really a shame. Now, moments ago, you mentioned India. We're now seeing the Delta variant becoming widespread in the U.S. This is the variant that originated there. Will lack of vaccine access keep the virus mutating and harder to overcome with time? It's a really important question. You know, none of us are going to be safe until all of us are safe. And so I think that what the Delta variant is showing us is that when a variant emerges in another country, because not enough people are vaccinated yet, it's going to cost lives. I've lost family members in the last month in India because we simply do not have people vaccinated at the rates we should have them vaccinated. And now this is terribly scary here in the United States to see the Delta variant starting to spread and the rates increase. This is only the beginning. And I don't say that to scare anyone. I say that because it's simply a fact. If we do not get people vaccinated worldwide, we are going to see more and more variants emerge. So there is a need for all of us 
to keep lifting our voices and make sure that our governments, especially the G7 government, are taking swift action to increase vaccine access in countries all over the world. So what would you say in a nutshell is the biggest lesson from this pandemic? On this side, and when we're talking about vaccine access, for me, the clearest lesson is that governments worldwide, including the United States, have invested together almost $100 billion in the research and development and other aspects of getting these vaccines to us. You know, it's a phenomenal accomplishment. It cannot be overstated that we have vaccines today. Um, and it's because taxpayers funded so much of this vaccine development process, but we did not put conditionalities in place that said, if we the taxpayers helped fund these vaccines, then we should have control over what happens next. Right now, governments seem to have ceded away all their power. So they don't have the ability to say, okay, we are now gonna share the technology with all of the other countries so that many, many more manufacturers can get up and running. And that is the biggest lessons learned. We need to change our laws and policies to make sure that when the next pandemic comes around, if the government is funding research and development, then the government has an ownership stake in what happens next. Thank you, Pretty Crystal of the Nonprofit Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge, IMAC. Take care. Thanks so much for also sharing your story. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And in, in El Salvador, one coastal area is already embracing cryptocurrency Bitcoin and is proving successful among local merchants. Some are even accepting it for transactions as small as buying a soft drink. Jonathan Mejia has the story. The cryptocurrency Bitcoin has found fertile ground in this small coastal community in El Salvador known as Playa El Sonte. For example, if I want a soda or something worth 25 cents, can I do it like this? Yes, you can. If you want a candy, you can buy it. Yes, of course, with Bitcoin, it is much easier. Roxana is the owner of this small business and says that Bitcoin has allowed her sales to increase. When they start to understand it, they will like it because they will start to handle it. But there are people who are negative and think that it is the devil's currency because it has three sixes. That is not so. Some hotels and several businesses in the area accept the virtual currency. But every rule has its exception. And here, one of those exceptions is Doña Blanca and her tortillas. Several people have come to ask me if I take Bitcoin. No, I need cash. Because where I buy corn, they do not accept Bitcoin. So I need cash. This tourist bought a floater for his little boy and says everyone should accept Bitcoin. How do you feel about paying in Bitcoin? I feel happy that they give the country the opportunity to develop with virtual currencies. Many people are coming to ask for information about Bitcoin and to buy it at the only ATM that exists in the community. Reported by Ernesto Rivas in El Sonte Beach, El Salvador, Jonathan Mejia, U News. 
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.